Welcome to everybody. Oh, uh, I want to, I guess, introduce the lesson this morning by saying, oh, no, this isn't, this isn't another um, excuse that, that Wilson's taken to talk about this particular parable, though it is the most important parable in the New Testament, mind you. But if you, if you look beyond that little eccentricity of mine, you'll recognise that, yes, this is a parable that is central to the theme of evangelism because it's central to the theme of the love of the Father. And I hope to be able to, I guess, demonstrate that for you in the course of our short lesson this morning. (laughs) Reflections on evangelism from a father and his two sons, Luke chapter 15. I'm just going to change my glasses, excuse me. Oh, thanks, Johan. I get nervous because I don't know what I can touch and what I can't touch without messing things up. All I know is I'm supposed to stand right here (laughs) by the microphone, like a good boy like Isaac. Um, I'd like to give the context, uh, if if I may, so that we can, I think, um, fully understand the parable itself, but more importantly for our purposes this morning, so we can understand the direct connection that this parable has with the, the whole theme of evangelism. So in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Luke tells us that the tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until it is found? Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbours and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Of course, remember, this is Jesus' response, immediate response, to the concerns, the complaints that the scribes and the Pharisees were expressing because Jesus was associating with those that they deemed to be unworthy, the sinners. And of course, the message for us, I think, is very clear, even, even at this point. Um, in the context, Jesus responding to the complaints of the Pharisees and lawyers that Jesus is associating with sinners, um, uh, and, and I don't want us to miss this point because in today the scribes and the Pharisees get pretty bad press and we tend to dismiss them as, as all religious hypocrites, etc. But really we do them a gross disservice in that thinking. Certainly there were many scribes and Pharisees who were hypocritical. I mean, in many of Jesus' engagements with them that we read of in the Gospels, that's precisely the point of tension between them and Jesus. But I want you to think more broadly than that and recognise that these people really represented 
the righteous ones, the ones that were conscientiously trying to serve and honour God. Now, many of them fell into that pitfall of hypocrisy, etc. But generally, the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that were trying to honour and respect God and his word. And so I say that, I emphasise that, so that we don't make the mistake of disassociating ourselves from the scribes and the Pharisees altogether. Oh, I wouldn't be like that. Well, in fact, I would hope that we are trying to be, not imitating their hypocrisy, but certainly be, to be trying to imitate, if you will, their, their attempts to be faithful. Secondly, the point God cares about and reaches out to those alienated from him and receives the repentant sinner with joy. And so, this is the point. Contrary to the attitude of the Pharisees, the righteous should reach out and invite sinners to return to God and to rejoice when they do. The righteous those who seek, there's nothing self-righteous in that label, those who seek to honour and serve God, which is a positive thing. Those who are God-fearers, which is a positive thing, should be concerned about the lost and should not hesitate to reach out to them in their lostness. So that sets the stage, that sets the context for the parable as it unfolds. Jesus, this is the third in a series of three parables that Jesus gives. So this is part of his response, kind of climactic, if you will. But in this case, he fleshes things out considerably. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And so the context helps us understand who the characters in this parable represent. The father is God, Father God. The younger son are the Jewish sinners. And the older son represent the Jewish Pharisees and lawyers, the righteous ones. The younger son's request is a scandalous insult to the father. He wishes his father was dead. And I think it's important for us to understand because I think many people today do not understand this. On quite a few occasions when I've talked to people who would uh, certainly qualify or count themselves as unbelievers, some of them even saying, I'm an atheist, when, when, when confronted with the, the love of the Father expressed in the coming of the Son, their attitude has been, well, what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with me? As if, as if the Father and his love is something that can be just this. No, I know the premise of being an atheist would be I disregard or I reject the existence of God. It's a fiction, it's a fairy tale. But I want to suggest to you that that is just an extreme form of what we read here as represented in 
the younger son, the prodigal son. Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. This is more than the impatient restlessness of youth. It's the sort of rebellion and shameful disrespect towards a parent that threatened to undermine the social fabric of Israel, hence in the Decalogue. Honour your mother and your father because this is foundational to a healthy society and warranted severe punishment under the law of Moses. Such texts would have informed the community's expectations of the father's response to his younger son's behaviour, which is why the father's response is so surprisingly, even shockingly, countercultural and counterintuitive. Remember, Jesus is addressing an audience of Jews here, an audience of righteous Jews who knew. And so when they hear this story, this parable, and they are confronted with the behaviour of the father and the son here, the younger son, demanding his inheritance. They're very attuned to the response of the father because guess what? Guess what they're expecting? Any self-respecting, righteous Jewish father would respond strongly, harshly to that sort of impotence from his young son. This is the social expectation. There were legal procedures to distribute a father's wealth among sons that were customarily exercised as the father's death approached. Genesis chapter 25, for example, just a couple of verses there to demonstrate this point. Abraham, we're told, gave everything he owned to his son Isaac. Remember Isaac, the son of promise. And in that context would have been counted as the firstborn, not literally the firstborn, but the firstborn, the preeminent one, because Isaac was the son of both Abraham and Sarah, according to God's promise. So as the custom was of the day, Abraham would make provision for his son, giving everything he owned to his son Isaac. But before he died, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them off to a land in the east away from Isaac. Now, some might, some might suggest that, well, this is, God, this is Abraham just being prudent and wise and sort of uh, paying off all the other claimants to, to, the, uh, to the inheritance and, and shuffling them along. And, and there might be an element of that. But what I want you to notice here, provision was made for the son. See, Isaac wasn't the only son that Abraham bore. There were many other sons that Abraham bore, but, but he would take care of all of them as was appropriate in this time and place, in this particular culture. In such a case, the heirs were given the legal right of possession, but, notice, not the right of disposition or disposal. So they were given, they were given the money in theory, as it were, they were given the inheritance in theory, but they weren't yet able to exercise the disposal of those resources because the father was still alive, thus protecting the dignity and the welfare of the father until he died. If a son would receive the, uh, the inheritance, then, then unscrupulous sons would obviously abuse their, their father, their parents. Well, they don't yet have that right. 
the inheritance has been passed and legally it's binding. But at this stage, prior to the father's death, it's, it's the legal right of possession but not yet the right of disposition or disposal. Um, having been the firstborn, the, the son in the parable would have received a double portion. But there is no indication that his father was nearing death because of age or illness. You see, the young son wasn't just saying, oh, Dad, you're terminally ill, let's get on with it. As far as we know, Dad was very much healthy and alive and had many years ahead of him. And this is important to understand the full gravity of the younger son's rebellion. Dad, I wish you were dead. Shock, anger, scandal and disgrace upon the family. The older brother, that's what he saw. That's how he interpreted the whole framework in which he interpreted the behaviour of his young brother. Luke 15 verse 13, A few days later this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land and there he wasted all his money in wild living. The younger son prematurely exercised the right of dispossession, which you've noticed we said wasn't his right at all. But he goes and gets rid of the stuff. He liquidates, suggesting a callous disregard for the honour and well-being of his father. He gathered all, which is a phrase, synagogue panter. The synagogue, we can, we can, we can recognise the word from a Jewish gathering. The gathering together of, of everything, pulling everything together. Uh, and, and some have suggested that it probably refers to the disposal of the goods cheaply. Fire sale. I just want to get out of here as quickly as I can. The distant country was Gentile territory. The son's departure was a risky venture and it suggests he had no intention of returning to his father or his native village. He was burning bridges behind him. This is interesting. This comes from a scholar named Kenneth Bailey. First century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. This ceremony was called the Kezazar, literally a cutting off, a disowning. After it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward person. It was a shunning. It was a shunning. Bear that in mind. About the time his money ran out, A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man, because he became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Vulnerable because of his self-imposed exile and it was a self-imposed exile, you remember. I want out of here. Self-imposed exile from the father and his home country, the worst things imaginable happen. He runs out of money and one would imagine his many fair-weathered friends and is in desperate need. 
the tragic irony of a Jew depending upon a Gentile and working with pigs would not be lost even on the obstinate and rebellious prodigal son. He is alone with his self-pity and need, which brings him to a point of personal crisis. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. The prodigal son is driven to a turning point. And this is often assumed to signify his repentance. But one would suspect it is a change of mind motivated by worldly sorrow rather than godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow as in feeling sorry for himself and the consequences of his actions that he's now having to suffer. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like a thief that gets caught in the act and the police are there to greet him on his way out the front door and off to jail. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry for me and my circumstances rather than what Paul in Corinthians describes as a godly sorrow. I'm profoundly sorrowed because I've grieved God. It's reminiscent of Pharaoh's response, um, just citing there in Exodus chapter 10. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. Uh, this is in the context of the plague of the, uh, the locusts. Uh, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you, he confessed. You see the similarity, at least in the language. Forgive my sin just this once and plead with the Lord your God to take away this deadly plague from me. But we know in hindsight that this was just Pharaoh trying to head off the consequences of his hard-heartedness, of his rebellion against God. It wasn't a true repentance. It wasn't a true turning of one's heart to God. He just wanted the pain of the consequences of his rebellion to be taken away. The prodigal son hopes to be treated as a hired hand. He knows he's forfeited any rightful claim to sonship. And this suggests he views the problem as one of cash and property squandered, the remedy for which would be working for hire to repay the debt. This highlights an important but not so readily apparent parallel between the two brothers. They both view their relationship with their father as resting on the basis of earning or deserving or entitlement, that is, merit rather than grace. The real issue is a broken relationship needing to be reconciled, not broken laws and customs needing to be recompensed. Or, as in the case of the older brother, laws and customs kept and so deserving a reward. I'm going to come back in a moment and emphasise that point, similarity between the two. Back to Luke 15, the parable itself, verse 20. So he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. 
But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put them on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the fatted calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. And here, the love and compassion of the father is emphasised. The father took the risk and the humiliation of letting his prodigal son go his own way. Remember the whole issue of the cultural expectation of a good Torah-believing, Torah-obeying Jew in this broader context as Jesus was addressing these Jews. The expectation that were this father righteous, he would not tolerate this behaviour from his son and there would be serious consequences, serious consequences. But this guy's let him go. He's let him get off scot-free. Shameful. Not just shameful behaviour on the part of the younger son, but shameful behaviour on the part of the father. How would you justify that sort of wishy-washiness. It's the father in letting his son depart. But now it goes from bad to worse in the eyes of the community. His gaze was always towards the horizon in the hope that his son might return. The father here rushes, again, more socially undignified behaviour No patriarch would just pick up his garment and start running in public like that. This guy's just, it's it's outrageous. The father rushes to embrace his impoverished son, preempting the reprisal before the village elders could get together and come and confront him with the pot of clay, remember? Kedazar! We know you. You abandoned us. You betrayer. And you've lost everything. Shame upon your family, shame upon the village. And now you've got the gall to come back here. Away with you. You're left here declaring you wished your father was dead. Well, guess what? You're dead to us. You're dead to us. But the father heads all that off. The prodigal is fully reinstated as the father's son, as signified by the robe and the signet ring. Their ruptured relationship is now reconciled, which calls for extravagant celebrations. Meanwhile, The oldest son was in the fields working and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. It's reported that the older brother, that his father has received the prodigal Hagano. In Greek culture, the term is related to good health, so the English will recognise the term hygiene. But according to Bailey, 
Every occurrence of hygieno in the Greek Old Testament translates the great Hebrew word shalom or peace. Shalom includes good health, but it also means harmony or reconciliation. This is probably why the older son responds to the news with anger and aloofness. I'm not going near, I'm not going near that. The gracious father had already made peace with the prodigal, leaving no opportunity for the elder son to argue his just case against receiving back the younger son. Dad's cut me out of the whole process. He had no right to do that. That's wrong and I'm not going to put up with it. The older brother's refusal to join his father at the banquet was almost as big a social insult to the father and his guests as was his younger brother's original rejection of the father and his village. That ironic twist that in the very beginning that which the older son found so objectionable, so offensive, now... He's committing that own, the very same sin himself. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. Though outward appearances made them seem very different, the common denominator of self-centredness between the brothers is becoming clearer and so too is the hypocrisy of the older brother. The countercultural and counterintuitive behaviour of the father comes to the fore again as he bears the humiliation of the older son's refusal and accepts the shame of leaving his guests to plead with his son. This father is, is extraordinary. At great personal expense, no humiliation is too great when it comes to loving his sons and acting in their best interests, acting in the interests of reconciliation. The self-interest that motivates the older son's obedience is exposed. It's not fair. The father's grace towards the prodigal is met with incredulity and resentment. Though physically present, the relational distance between the father and his firstborn son is no less than the chasm that developed between the father and his younger son. Both sons needed to be reconciled to their father and, of course, to one another. His guests may well be thinking, here we go again. I mean, he's called together a feast and you can, you can be confident that all of the prominent citizens of the village are there. Here we go again. Why, 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 when's this guy going to man up and beat these insubordinate sons of his? Deal with them correctly. In its own way, 
His behaviour is as unexpected and and as unacceptable as that of his sons. It is noteworthy that in his response, the father is no less compassionate and gracious towards the older son than he was towards the younger son. And the attitude of the older brother towards his sibling is summed up in his words to his father, that son of yours, the prodigal, had died to him when he disgraced the family and the older brother no doubt struggles to understand why his father doesn't see the situation the same way. The older son doesn't understand grace. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost but now he is found. As noted earlier, the firstborn son would have received his double portion. He would have taken possession of everything that was left of the father's estate after the prodigal's departure. But the older son seemingly struggles to see beyond a father taking liberties with his stuff. The father has passed on the inheritance to the sons. Double portion, let's say two-thirds to the older son and a third to the younger, the prodigal, who's gone off and wasted his share. The older son now, as the older son, is left not just with the majority of the resources of the household, but the responsibility for the household. He's taken possession, doesn't yet have the right to dispersing. That right won't fall to him until dad dies but he has the right of possession. To all intents and purposes, this is his stuff. Who do you think's really paying for this banquet? Am I now supposed to support this fellow from the household budget? Really? Until he learned to look beyond his rights and justice and there were plenty of unfairness on the older brother's scorecard against his sibling. I mean, nobody's pretending the innocence of the younger brother. The older brother had just cause to be complaining when and if one looks at it purely and simply in black and white terms of justice. He would be incapable of appreciating the ultimate value of love and reconciliation. He would miss the party and the parable cleverly concludes with a suspended or a suspenseful uncertainty about whether or not the elder brother will humble himself to accept the father's invitation to come to the party. Will he or won't he? Will he or won't he? The parable of the father, the parable of the father and his two sons is the climax of Jesus' response to the criticism levelled at him, remember, by the Pharisees and the scribes because he was associating with the tax collectors and sinners. Not, not just because he was partying with them. Jesus was accepting them, embracing them, with a view to wooing them back to the father. Jesus skillfully weaves a story around a father's love for his two sons that is full of surprises, casting the rogue Jews as the prodigal son and the Pharisees and scribes as the older resentful brother. 
the father's sacrificial love for both sons exposes and seeks to disarm the selfishness of both sons. Though their egocentrism outwardly projects very different images, the younger brother's selfish freedom versus the older brother's self-interested legalism, they are simply two sides of the same coin of self-centeredness. Do you see that? Do you appreciate that? The outward appearance in the younger son's behaviour was very different to the outward appearance of the older son's behaviour. But in the telling of the story and the reactions of the two sons, it becomes very apparent that both of them are operating on the basis of self-interest. The primary theme of the parable is the outrageously gracious hospitality of the father. Firstly, towards the younger son, who finally recognised his lostness in his father's embrace. Not, I would argue, at the time, the pig pen moment, or he felt sorry, that was a turning point, but I would suggest to you that his sorrow was directed at himself, self-pity. It wasn't until he came, and much to his surprise, remember he's, he's, he, he, he recognised he'd forfeited any right to sonship. No reason to even begin to imagine in his wildest dreams that he'd ever be accepted back as a son. He'd give all that up. But lo and behold, the father receives him back, not as a servant, but he reinstates him as a son. And the father, his response to the older son, who of course saw his relationship with the father on the strength of his being a good boy, And as long as I'm a good boy, Dad owes me. Dad owes me. But in his attitude, he risked remaining alienated from the father while ever his pride prevented him from accepting the needs for the father's grace, both for himself and for his younger brother. My summary. The parable really is a retelling of the story of human rebellion against God and our universal need for God's grace. In in this sense, I want to argue that the Jews here represented in its entirety the nation of Israel, divided into two groups, two categories. There's the righteous, represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, the good religious ones the good Torah-observant Jews. And then on the other hand, there are those that are uh, are born Israelites but aren't too fussed about the religion business. And so they're caught up with other things. It might be as a result of hard-heartedness on their part, uh, quite a, a literal rebellion of God, against God. Or it might be through the harshness of life circumstances, they've just been pushed aside, pushed to the margins of society. Whatever the case may be. All are encompassed. And I want to suggest to you that by extension, 
while this encompasses all Israel in their relationship with God, while we understand today that God reaches out not just to the elect chosen nation of Israel according to God's purposes at that place and that time, but now he invites all humanity and I want to suggest to you that all humanity fits into one of those two categories. Either the older son or the younger son. It is the story of human life apart from God and apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where neither serve the creature instead of the creator and I hope that you're reminded immediately of, of the Apostle Paul's description in Romans chapter 1 of a Gentile world that had turned their back on God, serving the creature rather than serving the creator or trying to obligate God to reward us because of our works as represented in the older son. And this goes way beyond the religion of Judaism This is the nature of much, much human religion where it's about devising a system whereby if I keep these rules, God's obligated to me. And the trouble with that, oh, again, thinking of Romans. Romans chapters 2 and 3, Paul has a little bit to say about having laid out plainly the universal failure of Gentiles to honour God. He reminds the Jew, the Torah-observant Jew, that they too, precisely because they have not kept the law perfectly, which of course is the expectation of law. <laughs> this is driving me crazy. The expectation of law, the demand of law, if we would naively seek to be right with God on the basis of our own performance, on the basis of of law-keeping, which, of course, does not work. That's why it's so important to recognise not just the older son, not just the younger son, but the father in all of this. The prodigal younger son, in terms of the irreligious, which I guess he would fit into, Dad, I wish you were dead. God is dead. I will live my own life, my own way. And that's very prevalent in our society today, that very thinking, that very attitude. But also, of course, religiously, God can be manipulated. God is love. And so he's obligated to indulge me in living my life my way. The self-righteous elder son, an irreligious expression, might be what I would consider in the Australian experience quite typical up until up until uh, my generation, let's say, and earlier. Just in case God does exist, I mean, I'm not I'm not fully persuaded of it. I'm not I'm not convicted, and so it's not really. I'm not going to send. I'm not about to begin to centre my life on God or anything radical or extreme like that. Let's not get carried away. But at the end of the day, I'm a pretty good bloke. I'm good enough. 
if it does turn out that there is a God, I'm okay. I'm not a murderer or a rapist. Any reasonable God would have to accept me on those terms, if indeed God does exist. But then, of course, the religious expression, again, notice the common language, the common denominator, God can be manipulated. God is just, and so he's obligated to reward my good enough obedience. Now, I'm hoping at this point, coming back to this issue of evangelism, that we can recognise different people ultimately will fit into one of these two categories. Either the younger son, who are living in rebellion against God, or the older son, who in some form or another still consider themselves to be good enough. But it's still about ultimately about me. This is the one to get. The Father's grace. The third way, if you will. The way of the gospel. The way of Christ's likeness. So, summarising evangelistic insights from the parable of the father and his two sons. Now, I've got the statement there, fellow sojourners. And I think this is so important, so fundamentally important. Do you think that this is what Jesus is trying to impress upon his critics, the scribes and the Pharisees, when they complained about Jesus' reaching out to the lost, to the unrighteous, to the sinner? You guys really are no, no, in no different situation than, than them. You guys are no less in need and dependent upon God's grace than them. The difference is, well, what is the difference? If we're investing our relationship with God on the basis of our performance, or going back to the Father and, and, and beg for his mercy, and I'll work for him as a servant to pay off my debt. Or the older brother, I've been working. The father's indebted to me. We're all in that boat. We as Christians need to see ourselves as one or both of the sons. When you look at that parable and look at those sons, do you see yourself Maybe, maybe the image has shifted. Maybe, I know in my experience, I will look and, and, and my attention, when I think about before becoming a Christian, my attention is immediately drawn. I empathise like crazy with the prodigal son. Absolutely. I suspect that Jesus was thinking of me when he, when he was making that story up. And I suspect that others of us here would think similarly. But the big challenge I find even more confronting now is the older son. Even though I've become a Christian, the temptation to feel that God is so lucky to have me on his side. You know, wow, if, if only everybody was like me. I, I say that publicly 
as an issue of embarrassment and shame because it's ridiculous. We all know that that's ridiculous. But that's the, the pitfall. That's the, uh, the, the trap. We, as children of God, as Christians in Christ, we are in the process of healing from our sin and our selfishness. And that biblically is, is, is described as sanctification, the role of the Spirit in our lives. But, notice, we are still in need of the Father's grace. We must never lose sight of that. You know that, that almost trite phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. I say trite because it's often trotted out in a, in a very easy fashion. But if we understood the truth of that sentiment, it would cause us to be humble. And in our humility, we would remain authentic, not pretenders to be other than, to be better than we are. And as part of that package, to be a forgiving people. As a people who have received God's forgiveness, we in turn, of all people, should be willing and able to forgive others. We need to see others, non-Christians, as one or both of the sons, wounded and broken. Wounded and broken. And in desperate need of the Father's grace. You've moved this. <laughs> That's why it's confusing me. Compassion. If we can view others outside of Christ that way, instead of nasty, rebellious sinners, broken, wounded people, we can be compassionate and we can begin to make sense of why Jesus would say that love Agape, specifically, willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. That that's not the only, but certainly the key characteristic of discipleship to Christ. Love God and love your neighbour. That's a call to be compassionate towards those around us. And finally, the two ways of living while alienated from the father, as represented by the two sons, are each self-centred and egocentric. The third way, as represented by the father and the son, I would hasten to add, is the remedy. The remedy to our self-centredness, whether that's expressed in terms of the older son or the younger son, is to accept God's invitation to rediscover true life in him through becoming Christ-centric. So, we're bearers of good news. We've heard that in a number of different ways and forms over the past several months. We are bearers of good news. When it comes to the task, the privilege of evangelism, we are witnesses. We are bringing testimony to the good news of God's love and what God has done for humanity, for all creation, through his Son. The invitation 
to return home. Whether you're one who's wandered far away or whether you're one who's stayed, and I often think of growing up in a Christian home, how sometimes a young person might struggle to see, where do I fit? Because I'm not, I don't relate to this idea of being a terrible sinner. I've grown up to value the values of mum and dad as Christians and I I feel part of that. Yes, but you're no less needy of God's grace that's available only in and through Jesus Christ. Come home, come home. And so the call for us to be gracious and hospitable like God. And so we conclude with this image. As the family of God, as we could wish that the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was addressing in his day could have conceived of themselves as as those that were so privileged and honoured by God to be gathered around the feast. And so we look to invite others. We're not selfish. We want to share the blessings with others. Is is that the image that you have of, of yourself and of the church? Come, come to the feast, come to the feast. And if we have that picture in our minds, we can be so bold. We can be so enthusiastic to share that invitation because all we're doing is seeking to bless, to bless others.